Glad you've come today and hope that you've got your Bibles open to the book of Hosea. For some of you, this is a, uh, a rare moment in your lifetime to be studying the uh, prophetic book of Hosea. There's some incredible truths in this book, and today we're going to be walking through 11, 12, and 13, almost sort of in a cyclical sort of fashion, looking at various themes that emerge in uh, these three chapters. I want you to think with me about the last time you asked yourself the following questions. Here's the first one. Where am I? Some of you may have been lost this week. So you maybe woke up at a hotel room or vacationing someplace and thought, where in the world am I? Secondly, question, where is this going? Hopefully it's been a while since you've asked that in a sermon. <laughs> um, or maybe you're sitting across from someone at a Starbucks and you're sensing an awkward moment of a conversation Maybe the beginning stages of a breakup, and you're like, where is this going? Here's another one. When's the last time you've looked in the mirror and asked yourself this question? Who am I? And then finally, here's another question. Who is God? Often that question and the question, who am I, come together. Perhaps some sort of personal crisis causes you to ask some probing questions. Maybe some pain in your life has caused you to ask, who is God? If I were to interview you about the last time that you've asked any of these questions, my guess is it would probably be in the midst of some sort of uncomfortable moment, a moment when, frankly, God had your attention. In fact, you may be here today because God has your attention. Something's happened in your life, you're starting to ask these questions, and you thought, you know what? I've got to settle this spiritual issue within my soul, and so you're here today, and I'm so glad you are. What you need to know is those questions, who are you, where are you going, who is God, those are all questions that we all wrestle with. In fact, they're always there, they just kind of linger there, and sometimes it takes pain or crisis or something else to sort of uncork the bottle, and those questions come out. Those questions come out usually in a moment of crisis. In some respects, Sunday morning is a bit of that kind of crisis. It's a moment when we ask ourselves those very questions, when we open the Bible and have a crisis, realizing who we are and who God is. In fact, Sunday morning is so important that after we talk about missions, we're gonna spend three weeks talking about what does it mean for us to gather together on Sunday mornings? So for three weeks, I'm gonna unpack, why do we gather? Like, what's the purpose of why we're here every Sunday? Secondly, how does it relate to our understanding of the Bible? How do you listen to sermons, even bad ones? <laughs> and then, what does it mean to sing together, and what should our congregational singing look like and be like? All of that's important because Sunday morning is, frankly, a bit of a crisis moment when we come face to face with who we are and with who God is. And the text before us today in Hosea 11 to 13 essentially asks those questions of us. Who is God? Who are we? If you're joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of this book that was written in the 8th century B.C. It was written to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, because in the midst of their prosperity, their arrogance, and some political intrigue, they were beginning to lose their culture. And God sent a prophet Hosea, a prophet who married a prostitute as a stark and gritty reminder of God's love for Israel. Because like a prostitute who kept going to her separate ways, Hosea the prophet loved her even in her sin. Her, his love for her was scandalous. 
In the same way, Israel is like Gomer, and God is like Hosea. Or to make it very personal for all of us, we are like Israel. We are like Gomer. And so the story of Hosea is the story of God's love for his people. The story of Hosea is the story of God's love for all of us. It's the story of asking really big and important questions like, what is God like? And what am I like? And then what do I do about that? So that's our outline as we'll walk through this book together. You're gonna to to have Hosea 11, 12, and 13 open because we're gonna jump all over these three chapters using that framework, what is God like and who am I like, as our lens. First, what is God like? Well, the beautiful thing is in Hosea 11 in verse one and two, we get a summary of really everything we're gonna see this morning. It says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So first, I want to just help you understand that Hosea wants the people of Israel, and God through his word wants us to understand what is God like. Well, the text tells us what God is like. First, it tells us that God has people. The text says that when Israel was a child, I loved him. You see the words like child, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God considers human beings as his children. The Bible tells us that every human being, regardless of even if they believe in God, is made in the image of God. That means that the very nature of life within them is sacred and special, God-given. means that the family that you were born into didn't happen by accident. You didn't have a choice of the family you were born into, the parents that you had, the city that you were raised in. God, in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, he created that and put that into your life. The Bible tells us that God has people. But what's more, the Bible tells us that God has a people. Look at chapter 12 and verse nine. So turn over there. We see this personal relationship where God says, I am the Lord. That, by the way, that word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, first time it's used in the Bibles in Genesis 2 in reference to God's creative ability. It says, and the Lord God made the heavens. And so in this moment, Hosea is both linking God's creative power and also his personal relationship with people. I am the Lord, your God. And then look at Hosea 13 and verse four. He says, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You shall know no God but me. So the idea is that God is pursuing a people. He's pursuing people. And maybe you're here today because God has been pursuing you. You know that God has a plan for your life. But the crisis that has happened in your world has now caused you to ask some really important questions. God is a people. Secondly, we learn here that God loves his people. Go back to chapter 11 and verse one. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. This word for love is not the word often used for covenant love, but rather it's more of a personal, more of a fatherly affection. It's the, the kind of love when you have children and you see them do something that's cute and adorable, and you think, oh, I love kids. This is not the 18-hour drive to Florida. This is, this is the pictures you get from school. It's, it's the 
paintings that your children make for you. It's the crafts put on your table. It's the ashtray that your kid made for you, but you don't smoke. It's, you know, it's, it's those sorts of things where you go, oh, thank you. And you're like, what is this? You know, and thank you. And notice what it says here, verse three. There's even a fatherly sort of image that's used. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I mean, notice this. I mean, back in the 8th century B.C., parents were parents. They, 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 they taught children to walk. They, they held them, and they said, come on, come on. And the little children, you know, looked like little zombies, and they walk, and they fall, and the parents get them up. They're like, good job, good job. You're exceptional. You know, come on, get up, get up, and raise them. And, and the idea is that God taught Ephraim to walk. He, he poured out his love on them. This kind of love is a, a love that's a deep affection, the prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 31, three, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. And then look at chapter 11 and verse eight. The challenge is, is that this affection for his people Israel creates a conflicted heart. In fact, if you're a parent and you have a son or a daughter who's not living a way that brings you joy, you need to know that God understands that pain. Man, God understands that pain. Listen to these words. This would be a great comfort to those of you who today are just under the burden of a child, just not walking the right path. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Put the name of your child in that blank. How can I give you up, O? How can I hand you over, O Israel? These are the prayers of a, of a brokenhearted parent. God, would you help my son or daughter? Please spare them, but God, awaken them. How can I make you, these are the destructed cities around Sodom and Gomorrah, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart, notice this, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows tender and warm. Get the image that, that God is, he's walking with his people and he's grieved over their waywardness. So, what is God like? God has a people, God loves a people. Third, God corrects his people. We, we see not only that God loves his people in terms of his affection, but he loves them enough to, to redirect their steps. Look at chapter 11 and verse 10. Then they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So he's talking here about the end of their exile that's going to come, and God is going to call them back that their exile that's gonna happen from Assyria and eventually Babylon isn't going to be forever, that God's intention is to win them back, but they're about to walk through some very difficult moments. Look at chapter 12 and verse 14. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and he will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Is it not one of the hardest things that parents have to do is to allow their children to reap the consequences of their own decisions? God here is loving his nation, loving his people enough that he's going to allow the consequences to have their full course, which some of you may know exactly what that means. You went down a path and you're today living with the consequences of God awakening you to the path that you are on. Look at chapter 12 and verse 14, they will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. 
They're on the wrong side of justice. And then look at chapter 13 in verse seven. He says, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. The idea is that they are on the wrong side of God's justice. It's not that God doesn't love them, but they are to be warned that they don't know who they're messing with in terms of their lack of faithfulness. I wonder if you're here today and perhaps God's trying to get your attention. I wonder if perhaps the circumstances of your life are such that you're actually starting to hear. You may be here for the first time in a long time because the circumstances of your life are all putting together and you're just starting to wonder, maybe God's trying to tell me something. Can I just tell you, he absolutely is. If you wonder that, if you think that, he absolutely is. And it's no mistake today that we're in Hosea 11, 12, and 13. God may have this very chapter designed for you. That's how much he loved you. He drew you and put you in this very room this morning to hear this message or to hear this online. God intends for your heart to be awakened. So God has a people, God loves his people, he corrects his people, and then finally, beautifully here, what is God like? He delivers his people. Look at back at 11, verse one. I told you we were gonna go back and forth, so here we are, 11, verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and then this phrase, out of Egypt I called my son. Oh, this is the beautiful marker of the Old Testament model of redemption through the nation of Egypt. Out of the Exodus event, God drew his people. It was the moment when God declared, these people are mine. He pulled them from the major superpower, the clutches of the nation of Egypt. He conquered their false gods. He split the Red Sea. The story of God over and over in the Old Testament is that he is a delivering God. And yet, not only does God deliver in the example of being brought out of Egypt, but also he delivers in other ways. Look at chapter 12 and verse 10. God not only conquers nations like Egypt, but he also proclaims his word. Verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. The idea is this. God not only delivers by splitting the Red Sea, but he also delivers by putting the right person in your path who declares God's word to you. So that friend or that sermon or that pastor or that mom or dad who just consistently spoke God's word to you, or even just someone you're driving along and you hear a message on the radio or a song or some sort of message that comes by virtue of God's word, you need to know that's one of God's means of deliverance. In fact, text goes on and it says, verse 13, by a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet he was guarded. God brings people into the life of Israel in order to deliver her in the same way that God brings people into our lives. And then look at chapter 13 and verse four. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no savior. No other savior. That's the message of Hosea. Israel will look in their despair, they will look to Assyria, they will think, we need help, we need a foreign nation to come in. Back in the day, they didn't like God's rule, and so they said, we need a king like everybody else, so give us a king. They'll look to Egypt for their support, for their help, and in the midst of all of that, God is standing in front of Israel saying, what about me? I was the one who delivered you. I'm the one that has all grace. And you may be here today, having looked for all sorts of deliverance from all sorts of other angles, 
And it may be that the reason that you're here today is simply because it's about time for you to consider, what about God? What about Jesus? Do you know that God loves you and cares for you? Do you know that you were created in his image? Does your heart need to be reminded today about what God is like? In the course of this last week, has the enemy thrown temptations at you to try and invite you to believe lies about God? Has suffering or your own sin caused you to forget about God's faithfulness and his loving kindness? Friends, the reason this is important about what is God, what God is like, is because the whole basis of one's relationship with our God is not based upon our faithfulness or our consistency or our ability to make a promise, because none of that ever lasts. God knows it and we know it. The sum total of Christianity is that God made a promise to us through the person and work of Jesus, and it's his ability to keep his promise that keeps us, not our ability to keep ours. So when you stand before God, and if he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, the only answer on that day is because you promised. You promised that if I believe in Jesus, my sins are forgiven. Not because of me, not because of what I did, but because of you, your faithfulness. I'm trusting in you and what you said. The essence of God's character is your only hope for eternal life and any deliverance now. It's John who said in John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I don't care what you did last week. I don't care what you did last night. The reality is forgiveness for you is not conditioned on your faithfulness, it's conditioned on God's faithfulness. So why not come clean? Why not confess? God's not surprised about your sin. He knows what happens. When you confess your sin, God doesn't look at you and say, hmm, I didn't know that that happened. Thanks for telling me. God knows exactly what has happened. The whole purpose of confession is not to inform God, but instead to release the whole from the captivity, release the hold of captivity of the soul in guilt. So why not come? Why not come to the merciful God? So that's what God is like. He's pleading, begging for unfaithful Israel to come back, like a husband pleading with a sexually promiscuous wife, please come home, I loved you. This is not why we got married. That's the story of Hosea. That's why it's called scandalous grace. So if God is like Hosea, we're like Gomer. So what are we like? So the explanation of what God is like now points us to the stark contrast of what we are like. And listen, friends, if I can just be blunt, we need a regular reality check of what we are really like. We, we don't know ourselves very well, and it's pretty easy to convince ourselves that we are the exception to the rule. In one moment, we could be making snide remarks about the guy who's texting while driving, and then 30 seconds later doing the same because you're good at it. <laughs> we need somebody to tell us the truth because we don't tell ourselves the truth. Some years ago I told the story, it bears repeating, it just, just whenever I think of this situation, I think of this story. I was in a restaurant back at my former church in Holland meeting with a fellow pastor and we were at a Bob Evans restaurant having a great meal. He wiped his forehead, he was a little sweaty or something, and a little piece of paper stuck on his middle of his head. You know that awkward moment? You should tell somebody, because I didn't. Here's what happened. We were sitting there talking, and, and I saw that. I thought, well, it's going to fall off his face. And, and uh, so we're talking and talking, and then it didn't fall off his face. And so I was like, oh, Rex, what do I do? And, you know, he's, I'm looking at the paper. And, 
and you thought, what do I do? Do I just like, whoosh, like that? What do I do? To... But no, that bad boy was stuck on that face, and it was, it was not going away. And so, and then, then like five, six minutes went, and then I, I didn't feel like I could tell him because if he asked me, well, how long has it been there? I'd have to say, well, like six minutes. And then it was, got worse and worse. And so we kept talking, and we ended the lunch or the breakfast. It was still on his forehead, so we're walking to check out, and I kind of hit him on the back, hoping it would kind of maybe fall off. That didn't work. We get to the checkout line. It's still on his head. The lady's looking at him, checks him out, and he leaves, and that bad boy is really, it's on his forehead the whole time. He gets in the car, and he drives away. I went back to my office, and I was like, whew, that was stressful. I was glad that was over. Like, I didn't want to deal with that. And then my voicemail on my phone started blinking. And I pressed it and picked it up, and it was my friend Mike. And he said this, hey, Vrogop, it's Mike. Yeah, thanks a lot. I got in my car. How long is that piece of paper on my forehead, bro? <laughs> it's like, some friend you are. We're not having breakfast again. Boom, hung up. <laughs> so listen, I tell that because you'll never look at Hosea 11, 12, and 13 the same to make this point. Friends, we need the word of God, we need the spirit of God, we need the people of God, we need a friend of God to be a mirror that says, hey, you got something on your forehead. So what does that look like? Well, let's look at it. Hosea 11, 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. Oh, how true that is. You know what's wrong with us? We have broken desires. If you're taking notes, here's six characteristics of us. We have broken desires, meaning like it's just relentless. We just keep going the wrong way. Even, even if you become a Christian, you'll still have to wrestle with this. You raise children, you see it all the time. Like, children fight over the most ridiculous things. You get in the car and they're dividing a line. This is my line, this is your line. Or, no, I said I would call the ABC game first. And it's just like, please, the, the, the broken desires within us. The more they were called by sin, the more they went after it. Look at chapter 11 and verse 7. It says, my, my people are bent on turning away from me. This is the orientation of our heart. is the gravitational pull of the enemy. The gravitational pull of the remaining sin within us is such that we're always prone to go the wrong direction. You know you're like about two and a half seconds from making the worst decisions in your life because our broken desires are there all the time. And one of the things that this text helps us with is just to be reminded of how far and how quickly and how bad we could go down a particular path. So last week, my wife and I were out of town and we were stopping at a Dunkin' Donuts and a major accident happened right in front of us, in front of the, the restaurant, and um, car was damaged, airbags were everywhere, a little boy and little girl were on the sidewalk, my wife went out to comfort them, and the car was just, I mean, it was mangled. When we got in the car, my wife turned around and said to Savannah, is your seatbelt on? Now we always put our seatbelt on, but when you see a crash like that, you're gonna double check, is your seatbelt on? And this is what this is, this is, a, this is a crash. It's a reminder. You get a mirror up? What's going on with your desires? Like what's going on in your soul? And friends, we need that regular evaluation because the Bible tells us in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That means embedded in the heart of every single human being is the worst possible thoughts, the worst possible actions, and it's a miracle that they just don't come out all the time. We have broken desires. Secondly, we are prone to hypocrisy. 
Chapter 11 and verse 12, God takes them on because Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit, meaning this, they keep coming to worship. They keep saying things like, there's no God but the Lord. They keep singing and worshiping and bringing sacrifices when the reality is, the prophet Isaiah says this, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Think of the, the millions of people that will darken the door of church today across our country, and praise God, they're in churches. But think how many people will say things that they really don't mean. How many people that even come into this very room and say things that they don't mean. Maybe you today have said things already that you, you, you seriously don't mean. In fact, you may have grown up in the church, you're so familiar with religious things that you are an expert of walking in and walking out and saying all the right things, having the smile, grabbing the hand, saying the right words, and the reality is your heart's a million miles away. You need to know that God knows that, and it's a common ailment for those who call themselves a part of the human race. Nobody likes hypocrites. And yet if we dig deep enough, we'll find hypocrisy in all of our hearts, won't we? What is God like? What are we like? We're filled with spiritual hypocrisy at times. We're also filled with futile living. Third, a devastating statement we find in chapter 12. It says these people, Ephraim, feeds on the wind. So the picture of Israel is they are, they're chasing after the wind. They pursue the east wind all day long. This idea of pursuing the wind is the Bible's way of talking about pointless pursuits. Imagine just the lunacy of walking out in the parking lot and seeing some guy running around the, the parking lot, around the cars, trying to grab a hold of something in the air, and you say, what's he doing? Oh, he's chasing the wind. You'd be like, security, you know, like, come on, like, take care of this. This is weird. What's going on? And the idea in the book of Ecclesiastes is that vanity and pointlessness in life is like chasing after the wind. That means that they are pursuing things that will never satisfy them. It means that rather than looking to God for their identity, rather than looking to God for their deliverance, they look to Assyria, they look to Egypt. And as a result, they're filled with fear. Tim Keller says this about the problem of idolatry and feudal living. He says this, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of your life. When we center our eyes, our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. It's not that we say about that thing, what a shame how difficult that is, but rather we say, this is the end, there is no hope. And as a result, you're chasing the wind. For some of you, it was a job, it was a relationship, the idea of a perfect family, Whatever it was that you tried to grab a hold of that has not been a part of your experience, you could very well be chasing the wind. Fourth, the Bible describes Israel and us as being self-deceived. Look at chapter 12 and verse seven. A merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. And in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. The idea is this, that because of one's wealth, because of one's success, because of one's prominence, because of one's ability, one can begin to think, ah, there's nothing really wrong with me or begin to think that you're the exception to the rule. Pride begun, becomes the means by which we minimize our own waywardness. 
Oh, so brother or sister, if the Lord has blessed you financially or put you in a position where you have authority or people who report to you or you have an ability to create something from nothing or if your children are walking in a way that is honoring the Lord, you ought not take credit for that. Be careful before you say, look what I did. How dangerous it is to believe that your wealth or your blessing or your prominence is somehow because you are special or faithful. Don't ever forget that you are what you are because of the grace of God. People of Israel forgot that. Oh, how prone we are to forget that. Get into a vehicle that you just bought and it's really quickly, that smell of that vehicle or a piece of technology, someone notices, whoa, high-tech iPhone 8. You're somebody and you're like, yeah, I'm somebody. I got a piece of technology that's gonna be obsolete in seven months, yeah. (laughs) Right, what, what, you know what I'm talking about. Like, or they're like, those shoes are stellar, like yeah, my grandfather wore them. I mean, it's just like, what, what what is the reality of what's happening in our soul? We have this wrong understanding of who we are. Fifth, we're never satisfied. Oh, I wish the indictment stopped there, but There's this damning statement in chapter 13 and verse two. They sin more and more. They make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver. All of them the work of craftsmen. The idea is that we're never satisfied in our sinfulness. There's always a pull towards what's next. We keep getting better and better at making our own idols. And as a result, We shift, and we're shifty. Look at what he says in verse three. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. The idea is their affections are like a mist. They're into one thing and into another, into one thing, into another. I'm sure you feel this somewhere within you. You get done with one vacation, and you think, what about the next one? You get done with one experience, you think about the next experience. You just completed this weekend, you're already thinking about next weekend. Or someone pays you a compliment, you're thinking about the next one. Someone praises you, you're thinking about the next affirmation. Project goes well, you're thinking about the next completed project. Or maybe you're looking for the next relationship, looking for the next sensuous image, or the next sexual experience. The point is that this relentless pursuit makes you unstable, unfulfilled, and frankly, somewhere down in your soul, it makes you deeply unhappy because your heart has been destroyed from the inside out. Mm, Sin is a shadow that never satisfies. It's never static. It always wants more. And then finally, where we like, we are a forgetful people. So the dark contrast brings to conclusion, or comes to conclusion, in 13 and verse six, where it says this, but when they grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up, and therefore they forgot me. Ah, that's the problem. That Israel, in all of its abundance, and all of its success, it, it, it became so full of itself that it forgot who the Lord is. It forgot who God is. This is one of the blessings, by the way, of difficulty and hardship. Don't you pray more when you're struggling than when things are going well? Did you not seek the Lord passionately when your marriage was on the rocks? But what about now? 
See, it's much easier to forget the Lord when our heart is full. So beware when the Lord provides blessing. Beware when things are going well. So what do we like? Hmm. Well, according to this text, if we're honest, peel back the layers of our lives, all of us, you'll find broken desires, hypocrisy, you'll find futile living, you'll find self-deception, insatiable desires, and you'll find an aspect of forgetfulness. And I don't tell you all of this to make you feel more guilty than you should or to somehow shame you. I rather tell you this is because this is who we are. And the word of God helps us to be reminded what we're like so that we then can know what to do about it. And after all, it is secure people who want to be told when they're wrong. Insecure people don't want to be told that they're wrong. I mean, if you have ever walked your kids through soccer experience, you know this to be true. Five-year-old kids come off the soccer field. It doesn't matter if they lose 15 to zero. Everybody's a winner, right? Good job. You got killed. But man, did you sweat hard. Here's some oranges. I mean, what is this? By the time they get 16, 17, 18, that's not the language. That's not the kind of word you use. You don't have moms lining up a high school senior soccer field saying, good job, you guys really sweat. Here's some oranges. You don't say that. Instead, by this time, you could say, guys, that was awful. And you, we got to change before the next game. The maturity allows those things to be said. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, when a man is getting better, he understands more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows he's not very good, but a thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you're awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly, not while you're making them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you're sober, not when you're drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people don't know about either. That's why Hosea is in the Bible. It's meant to awaken you to the reality of who you are. So that's who God is, that's who we are like. Now let me just turn our attention finally. So what is Jesus like? The beautiful thing about Hosea is that it keeps pointing to Jesus. There's, there's texts that are in here that you may have noticed, you may not have noticed, that keep pointing us to the solution beyond the 8th century. Pointing us to the one who at the end of the day would solve the problem of who God is and who we are like. Therefore, we can read Hosea and all of the darkness of our human condition and we can read it with hope. So where do we see Jesus in this text? Let me show you. Back chapter 11 and verse one, we see that Jesus not only comes to the earth as a child, he's loved by the Father, even declared to be such in his baptism when God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased in Matthew three. But Matthew even uses Jesus' flight into Egypt as the evidence that he is the new Israel. In Matthew 2 and verse 15, when Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son. Oh, but how different is Jesus than Israel? Unlike the deceitful people of Israel, Jesus committed no sin, neither was sin found in his mouth. While the worship of Israel is fake, here is Jesus who cleanses the temple of its fake worship in Matthew chapter 21. Here's Jesus who identifies true righteousness as a matter of issues on the inside, not just on the outside. And whereas Israel is fascinated with her own riches, here Jesus empties himself of his riches, becomes poor in order to make others rich. 
Here is the one who becomes the savior that is so desperately needed. Here is not a king who comes in wrath, but rather a king who absorbs the wrath of God. Here is Jesus the prophet who speaks God's word, telling people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Here is Jesus at the Feast of the Tabernacles saying, I am willing to give living water to anyone who will come. And here is Jesus who is not the lion pouncing in Hosea 13, but rather here is Jesus the lion of Judah who pounces on sin and is able to open the scrolls of God's will in Revelation chapter five. He, Jesus, is the embodiment of obedience the obedience that Israel lacked. He's the embodiment of obedience that we lack, and he's also the one who makes redemption possible as Jesus fully obeys the Father and fully makes atonement so those who are rebels can now become his sons. So that the reality of what's happening in Hosea might never happen again in the new heaven and the new earth. In the God-man, Jesus Christ, here we have full obedience and complete atonement. Jesus was everything that we need and everything we're not. He provides forgiveness that we so desperately need and in the death and resurrection of Christ, there is now a path for people to be made right with their God that can reconcile our waywardness and God's faithfulness. And Jesus enters in to bring the two together. Signature text in Hosea, look at Hosea 13 and verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Notice the statement. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? If you know a little bit about the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15, you will hear that verse because the Apostle Paul grabs it out of Hosea and he applies it to the resurrection of Jesus where in the face of death, and in the power of the victory of Christ, Paul says, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, grave, where is the sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what is the solution to the problem of what God is like and what we are like? The answer is Jesus. It means that by coming to Christ, the problem of our hearts being bent the wrong way is addressed, and not only are our sins forgiven, but the Spirit of God dwells in us, not so that we are a perfect people, but rather so that we will not be the kind of people who live life in our own strength and power anymore. But I wonder, have you forgotten what God is like? Have you dipped your toe into particular sin issues this week, forgetting what he's like? Have you begun to think that somehow you deserve the blessings of God? Have you begun to ask yourself the question, who am I and what is God like? So friend, in light of Hosea 11, 12, and 13, can I just invite you first to be very mindful of the dangers of forgetting what God is like and forgetting what you are like? Can you be reminded of both the trauma of your own depravity but also the beauty of God's grace? Don't forget, you can come and confess your sins and be right with God today. You can come today and be in a restored relationship with him. And you also should not forget that sin, oh, sin is a wicked slave master. So secondly, not only don't forget, but perhaps today you need to confess your drift. 
God's not surprised about your drifting. He knows it's there. Why not confess it to him and say, Lord, I need to turn and come back and restore my relationship with you. I've made too much of myself or little aspects of pride have begun to sneak in and I'm becoming like Israel and I don't want to have the kind of experience that Israel had because this book is given in order for us to be warned and to be drawn back to God's heart. Or it may be today that You're here, and the story of Israel, frankly, is your story for a long time, and today may be a dividing line moment, a fork in the road. You may be to the point where you say, you know, I'm done trying to run my own life. I need someone else to take over. And friend, that person is the person named Jesus who transforms lives, cleans up hearts, and makes us right with God. Who am I? Who is God? Who is Jesus? Man, those are really important questions. And Hosea helps us to answer them. I hope you know the answer to them. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the great searcher of all hearts. There is no person's condition this morning that is unaware to you. And we thank you that there is no hiding in any way from your goodness, for your grace, and from your careful and spiritual inquiry. And so we just thank you that we can be in this text today and that your mercy is ready and available to us. And friends, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, could I just give you one particular way to respond to God this morning? You may be here today and sense a bit of forgetfulness in your soul, a bit of a, of a wandering, and you would say, Mark, as God is my witness, I need to be careful about not forgetting, and my heart has tended to forget in the last few days or week or month. And would you just put your hand up and then put it down? My heart is prone to forget. Put it up, put it down. My heart is prone to forget. Oh, Lord, thank you for these who you have graciously and kindly spoken to. Now pour out your mercy upon them. Thank you that if they confess their sins, you are faithful and just, ready to forgive. Thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that Christ is our King. And thank you that forgiveness is possible because of your scandalous grace. Oh Lord, we are Gomer and you are Hosea. What grace, what grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.